With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Avast me, hearties! Welcome back to another episode of ParCast Presents Storytime. In today's episode, we're continuing with part two of Robert Louis Stevenson's classic tale, Treasure Island. Treasure Island is one of the most beloved adventure stories of all times. It left an enduring impression on the pirate genre, having created many of the tropes we take for granted today. X marks the spot of the buried treasure, Swarthy buccaneers spouting nautical phrases like shiver me timbers, the black spot, and a one-legged buccaneer with a talking parrot. And its biggest contribution to pirates came through a character we'll meet in today's part of the story, the enigmatic Long John Silver. This is the second episode of a six-part series, so be sure to check your feed to hear the next part of the story. In our first installment, Young Jim Hawkins' adventure began the day mysterious Billy Bones arrived at his father's inn. After an altercation with one of his old shipmates, Billy Bones was found dead, and Jim discovered a treasure map buried at the bottom of his sea chest. With bloodthirsty pirates hot on his tail, Jim set out in search of allies to help him find the treasure. Meanwhile, he had not forgotten Billy Bones' cryptic warning to beware a seafaring man with one leg. Without further ado, we are excited to present part two of Treasure Island, The Sea Cook. Chapter 7 I Go to Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined, ere we were ready for the sea and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's of keeping me beside him, could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they call the Spyglass, 
and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us. But in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey with this addition, to be opened in the case of his absence by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order, we found, or rather, I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st, 17-. Dear Livesey, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. Two hundred tons. Name, Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend Blandly, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so, I may say, did everyone in Bristol, as soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for. Treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter, Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking, after all. Well, who's a better right, growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum go if squire ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that, I gave up all attempts at commentary and read straight on. Blandly himself found the Hispaniola and by the most admirable management got her for the merest trifle. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it me absurdly high, the most transparent calumnies. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship. So far there was not a hitch. The workpeople, to be sure, riggers and what not, were most annoyingly slow. But time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men, in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French. And I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock when by the merest accident I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get a smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched. So would you have been. And out of pure pity, I engaged him on the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and has lost a leg. But that I regarded as a recommendation, since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension, Livesey. Imagine the abominable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, but it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows by their faces of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. 
Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear in an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old tarpaulins tramping around the capstan. Seaward ho! Hang the treasure! It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Livesey, come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother with Redruth for a guard. And then, both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript. I did not tell you that Blandly, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, had found an admirable fellow for sailing master. A stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate, a man named Arrow. I have a bosun who pipes, Livesey, so things shall go man-o'-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a banker's account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and as she is a woman of color, a pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife quite as much as the help that sends him back to roving. J.T. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. J.T. You can fancy the excitement into which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if I ever despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under-gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as to even grumble, the next morning, he and I set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had so long been a cause of so much discomfort, was gone where the wicked cease from troubling. The squire had had everything repaired, and the public rooms and the sign repainted, and he had added some furniture. Above all, a beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. He found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she should not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood for the first time my situation. I had thought up to that moment of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving. And now, at the sight of this clumsy stranger who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I'm afraid I led that boy a dog's life, for as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner, Redruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to mother and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, since he was repainted, no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat, his saber-cut cheek, and his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner and my home was out of sight.
The mail picked us up about dusk at the Royal George on the Heath. I was wedged in between Redruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log, up hill and down dale, through stage after stage, for when I was awakened at last it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street, and that the day had already broken a long time. "'Where are we?' I asked. "'Bristol,' said Tom. "'Get down.' Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far down the docks to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither we now had to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work. In another, there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all been far over the ocean. I saw besides many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and tarry pigtails and their swaggering clumsy sea walk. And if I had seen as many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner with a piping bosun and pigtailed singing seamen, to see bound for an unknown island and to seek for buried treasure. While I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo, the ship's company complete. Oh, sir, cried I, when do we sail? Sail, said he. We sail tomorrow. Chapter 8 At the Sign of the Spyglass When I had done breakfasting, the squire gave me a note addressed to John Silver at the Sign of the Spyglass, and told me I should easily find the place by following the line of the docks and keeping a bright lookout for a little tavern with a large brass telescope for sign. I set off overjoyed at this opportunity to see more of the ships and seamen and picked my way among a great crowd of people and carts and bales, for the dock was now at its busiest until I found the tavern in question. It was a bright enough little place of entertainment. The sign was newly painted. The windows had neat red curtains. The floor was cleanly sanded. There was a street on each side and an open door on both, which made the large, low room pretty clear to see in, in spite of clouds of tobacco smoke. The customers were mostly seafaring men, and they talked so loudly that I hung at the door, almost afraid to enter. As I was waiting, a man came out of a side room, and at a glance I was sure he must belong John. His left leg was cut off close by the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain and pale, but intelligent and smiling. 
Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved about among the tables with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for the more favored of his guests. Now, to tell you the truth, from the very first mention of Long John in Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that he might prove to be the very one-legged sailor whom I had watched for so long at Old Benbow. But one look at the man before me was enough. I had seen the captain and black dog and the blind man Pew, and I thought I knew what a buccaneer was like, a very different creature, according to me, from this clean and pleasant-tempered landlord. I plucked up courage at once, crossed the threshold, and walked right up to the man where he stood, propped on his crutch, talking to a customer. "'Mr. Silver, sir?' I asked, holding out the note. "'Yes, my lad,' said he. "'Such is my name, to be sure. And who may you be?' And then, as he saw the squire's letter, he seemed to me to give something almost like a start. "'Oh,' said he, quite loud and offering his hand, "'I see.' You're our new cabin boy. Pleased I am to see you. And he took my hand in his large, firm grasp. Just then, one of the customers at the far side rose suddenly and made for the door. It was close by him, and he was out in the street in a moment. But his hurry had attracted my notice, and I recognized him at a glance. It was the tallow-faced man, wanting two fingers, who had come first to the Admiral Benbow. Oh, I cried, stop him, it's Black Dog. I don't care two coppers who he is, cried Silver, but he hasn't paid his score. Harry, run and catch him. One of the others who was nearest the door leaped up and started in pursuit. If he were Admiral Hawk, he shall pay his score, cried Silver. And then relinquishing my hand, who did you say he was, he asked. Black what? Dog, sir, said I. Has Mr. Trelawney not told you of the buccaneers? He was one of them. So, cried Silver, in my house? Ben, run and help Harry. One of those swabs, was he? Was that you drinking with him, Morgan? Step up here. The man whom he called Morgan, an old gray-haired mahogany-faced sailor, came forward pretty sheepishly, rolling his quid. Now, Morgan, said Long John very sternly, you never clapped your eyes on that black black dog before, did you now? Not I, sir, said Morgan with a salute. You didn't know his name, did you? No, sir. By the powers, Tom Morgan, it's as good for you, exclaimed the landlord. If you had been mixed up with the like of that, you'd never have put another foot in my house, you may lay to that. And what was he saying to you? I don't rightly know, sir, answered Morgan. "'Do you call that a head on your shoulders or a blessed dead-eye?' cried Long John. "'Don't rightly know, do ye? "'Perhaps you don't happen to rightly know who you were speaking to, perhaps. "'Come now, what was he jawing? "'Voyages, captains, ships, pipe up. "'What was it?' "'We was a-talking of keel-hauling,' answered Morgan. "'Keel-hauling, was ye? "'And a mighty suitable thing, too, and you may lay to that.' Get back to your place for a lever, Tom. And then, as Morgan rolled back to his seat, Silver added to me in a confidential whisper that was very flattering, as I thought, He's quite an honest man, Tom Morgan, only stupid. And now, he ran on again aloud, Let's see, Black Dog. No, I don't know the name, not I. Yet I kind of think of... 
Yes. I've seen the swab. He used to come here with a blind beggar he used. That he did, you may be sure, said I. I knew that blind man, too. His name was Pew. It was, cried Silver, now quite excited. Pew! That were his name for certain. Ah, he looked a shark, he did. If we run down this black dog now, there'll be news for Captain Trelawney. Ben's a good runner. Few seamen run better than Ben. He should run him down, hand over hand, by the powers. He talked a keelhauling, did he? I'll keelhaul him. All the time he was jerking out these phrases, he was stumping up and down the tavern on his crutch, slapping tables with his hand, and giving such a show of excitement as would have convinced an old Bailey judge or a Bow Street runner. My suspicions had been thoroughly reawakened on finding Black Dog at the spyglass, and I watched the cook narrowly. But he was too deep and too ready and too clever for me. And by the time the two men had come back out of breath and confessed that they had lost track in a crowd and been scolded like thieves, I would have gone bail for the innocence of Long John Silver. See here now, Hawkins, said he. Here's a blessed hard thing on a man like me now, ain't it? There's Cap'n Trelawney. What's he to think? Here I have this confounded son of a Dutchman sitting in my own house drinking of my own rum. Here you comes and tells me of it plain, and here I let him give us all the slip before my blessed deadlights. Now, Hawkins, you do me justice with the captain. You're a lad, you are, but you're smart as paint. I see that when you first come in. Now, here it is. What could I do with this old timber I hobble on? When I was an A.B. Master Mariner, I'd have come up alongside of him, hand over hand, and broached him in a brace of old shakes, I would. But now... And then, all of a sudden, he stopped, and his jaw dropped as though he had remembered something. The score, he burst out. Three goes a rum. Why, shiver me, Timbers, if I hadn't forgotten my score. And falling on a bench, he laughed until the tears ran down his cheeks. I could not help joining him, and we laughed together, peal after peal, until the tavern rang again. Why, what a precious old sea calf I am, he said at last, wiping his cheeks. You and me should get on well, Hawkins, for I'll take my davy I should be rated ship's boy. But come now, stand by to go about. This won't do. Duty is duty, messmates. I'll put on my old cockerel hat and step along of you to Captain Trelawney and report this here affair. For mind you, it's serious, young Hawkins, and neither you nor me's come out of it with what I should make so bold as to call credit. Nor you neither, says you, not smart. None of the pair of us smart. But dash my buttons, that was a good'un about my score. And he began to laugh again, and that so heartily that though I did not see the joke as he did, I was again obliged to join him in his mirth. On our little walk along the quays, he made himself the most interesting companion, telling me about the different ships that we passed by, their rig, tonnage, and nationality, explaining the work that was going forward, how one was discharging, another taking in cargo, and a third making ready for sea and every now and then telling me some little anecdote of ships or seamen or repeating a nautical phrase till I had learned it perfectly. 
I began to see that here was one of the best of possible shipmates. When we got to the inn, the squire and Dr. Livesey were seated together, finishing a quart of ale with a toast in it before they should go aboard the schooner on a visit of inspection. Long John told the story from the first to the last with a great deal of spirit and the most perfect truth. That was how it were now, weren't it, Hawkins, he would say now and again, and I could always bear him entirely out. The two gentlemen regretted that Black Dog had got away, but we all agreed there was nothing to be done, and after he had been complimented, Long John took up his crutch and departed. All hands aboard by four this afternoon, shouted the squire after him. Aye, aye, sir, cried the cook in the passage. Well, squire, said Dr. Livesey, I don't put much faith in your discoveries as a general thing, but I will say this, John Silver suits me. The man's a perfect trump, declared the squire, and now, added the doctor, Jim may come on board with us, may he not? To be sure he may, says squire. Take your hat, Hawkins, and we'll see the ship. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Chapter 9. Powder and Arms The Hispaniola lay some way out, and we went under the figureheads and round the sterns of many other ships, and their cables sometimes grated underneath our keel and sometimes swung above us. At last, however, we got alongside, and were met and saluted as we stepped aboard by the mate Mr. Arrow, a brown old sailor with earrings in his ears and a squint. He and the squire were very thick and friendly, but I soon observed that things were not the same between Mr. Trelawney and the captain. This last was a sharp-looking man who seemed angry with everything on board, and was soon to tell us why, for we had hardly got down into the cabin when a sailor followed us. "'Captain Smollett, sir, axing to speak with you,' said he. "'I am always at the captain's orders.' "'Show him in,' said the squire." The captain, who was close behind his messenger, entered at once and shut the door behind him. "'Well, Captain Smollett, what have you to say?' "'All well, I hope. All shipshape and seaworthy?' "'Well, sir,' said the captain, "'better speak plain, I believe, even at the risk of offense. "'I don't like this cruise. I don't like the men, and I don't like my officer. "'That's short and sweet.' "'Perhaps, sir, you don't like the ship?' inquired the squire, very angry as I could see. "'I can't speak to that, sir, not having seen her tried,' said the captain. "'She seems a clever craft. More, I can't say.' "'Possibly, sir, you may not like your employer either,' says the squire. But here Dr. Livesey cut in. "'Stay a bit,' said he. "'Stay a bit. 
No use of such questions as that but to produce ill feeling. The captain has said too much or he has said too little, and I'm bound to say that I require an explanation of his words. You don't, you say, like this cruise. Now why? I was engaged, sir, on what we call sealed orders to sail this ship for that gentleman where he should bid me, said the captain. So far, so good. But now I find that every man before the mast knows more than I do. I don't call that fair now, do you? No, said Dr. Livesey, I don't. Next, said the captain, I learn we're going after treasure. Hear it from my own hands, mind you. Now treasure is ticklish work. I don't like treasure voyages on any account, and I don't like them above all when they are secret, and when, begging your pardon, Mr. Trelawney, the secret has been told to the parrot. Silver's parrot, asked the squire. It's a way of speaking, said the captain. Blabbed, I mean. It's my belief neither of you gentlemen know what you're about. But I'll tell you my way of it. Life or death and a close run. That is all clear, and I dare say true enough, replied Dr. Livesey. We take the risk, but we are not so ignorant as you believe us. Next, you say you don't like the crew. Are they not good seamen? I don't like them, sir, returned Captain Smollett, and I think I should have had the choosing of my own hands if you go to that. Well, perhaps you should, replied the doctor. My friend should, perhaps, have taken you along with him, but the slight, if there be one, was unintentional. And you don't like Mr. Arrow? I don't, sir. I believe he's a good seaman, but he's too free with the crew to be a good officer. A mate should keep himself to himself, shouldn't drink with the men before the mast. Do you mean he drinks, cried the squire? No, sir, replied the captain, only that he's too familiar. Well now, and the short and long of it, captain, asked the doctor, tell us what you want. Well, gentlemen, are you determined to go on this cruise? Like iron, answered the squire. Very good, said the captain. Then as you've heard me very patiently saying things that I could not prove, Hear me a few words more. They are putting the powder and the arms in the forehold. Now, you have a good place under the cabin. Why not put them there? First point. Then you're bringing four of your own people with you, and they tell me some of them are to be berthed forward. Why not give them the berths here beside the cabin? Second point. Any more? asked Mr. Trelawney. One more, said the captain. There's been too much blabbing already. Far too much, agreed the doctor. I'll tell you what I've heard myself, continued Captain Smollett. That you have a map of an island, that there's crosses on the map to show where treasure is, and that the island lies... And then he named the latitude and longitude exactly. I never told that, cried the squire, to a soul. The hands know it, sir, returned the captain. Livesey, that must have been you or Hawkins, cried the squire. It doesn't matter much who it was, replied the doctor, and I could see that neither he nor the captain paid much regard to Mr. Trelawney's protestations. Neither did I, to be sure, he was so loose a talker. Yet in this case, I believe he was really right and that nobody had told the situation of the island. Well, gentlemen, continued the captain, I don't know who has this map. But I make it a point, it shall be kept secret even from me and Mr. Arrow. 
Otherwise, I would ask you to let me resign. I see, said the doctor. You wish us to keep this matter dark and to make a garrison of the stern part of the ship, manned with my friend's own people and provided with all the arms and powder on board. In other words, you fear a mutiny. Sir, said Captain Smollett, with no intention to take offense, I deny your right to put words into my mouth. No captain, sir, would be justified in going to sea at all if he had a ground enough to say that. As for Mr. Arrow, I believe him thoroughly honest. Some of the men are the same. All may be, for what I know. But I am responsible for the ship's safety and the life of every man jack aboard of her. I see things going, as I think, not quite right. And I ask you to take certain precautions or let me resign my berth, and that's all. Captain Smollett began the doctor with a smile. Did you ever hear the fable of the mountain and the mouse? You'll excuse me, I dare say, but you remind me of that fable. When you came in here, I'll stake my wig, you meant more than this. Doctor, said the captain, you are smart. When I came in here, I meant to get discharged. I had no thought that Mr. Trelawney would hear a word. No more I would, cried the squire. Had Lizzie not been here, I should have seen you to the deuce. As it is, I have heard you. I will do as you desire, but I think the worse of you. That's as you please, sir, said the captain. You'll find I do my duty. And with that, he took his leave. Trelawney, said the doctor, contrary to all my notions, I believed you have managed to get two honest men on board with you. That man and John Silver. Silver, if you like, cried the squire. But as for that intolerable humbug, I declare I think his conduct unmanly, unsailorly, and downright un-English. Well, says the doctor, we shall see. When we came on deck, the men had already begun to take out the arms and powder, yo-hoing at their work, while the captain and Mr. Arrow stood by superintending. The new arrangement was quite to my liking. The whole schooner had been overhauled. Six berths had been made astern out of what had been the after part of the main hold, and this set of cabins was only joined to the galley and forecastle by a sparred passage on the port side. It had been originally meant that the captain, Mr. Arrow, Hunter, Joyce, the doctor, and the squire were to occupy these six berths. Now Redruth and I were to get two of them, and Mr. Arrow and the captain were to sleep on deck in the companion, which had been enlarged on each side till you might almost have called it a roundhouse. Very low it was still, of course, but there was room to swing two hammocks, and even the mate seemed pleased with the arrangement. Even he, perhaps, had been doubtful as to the crew, but that is only guess, for as you shall hear, we had not long the benefit of his opinion. We were all hard at work, changing the powder and the berths, when the last man or two, and Long John along with them, came off in a shore boat. The cook came up the side like a monkey for cleverness, and as soon as he saw what was doing, So ho, mates, says he, what's this? We're a changing of the powder, Jack, answers one. Why by the powers, cried Long John, if we do, we'll miss the morning tide. My orders, said the captain shortly. You may go below, my man. Hands will want supper. Aye, aye, sir, answered the cook. 
and touching his forelock, he disappeared at once in the direction of his galley. That's a good man, Captain, said the doctor. Very likely, sir, replied Captain Smollett. Easy with that, men, easy, he ran on to the fellows who were shifting the powder. And then, suddenly observing me examining the swivel we carried amidships, a long brass nine, Here you, ship's boy, he cried, out of that. Off with you to the cook and get some work. And then, as I was hurrying off, I heard him say quite loudly to the doctor, I'll have no favorites on my ship. I assure you, I was quite of the squire's way of thinking and hated the captain deeply. Chapter 10 the voyage. All that night we were in a great bustle getting things stowed in their place, and boatfuls of the squire's friends, Mr. Blandley and the like, coming off to wish him a good voyage and a safe return. We never had a night at the Admiral Benbow when I had half the work, and I was dog-tired when a little before dawn the bosun sounded his pipe and the crew began to man the capstan bars. I might have been twice as weary, yet I would not have left the deck. All was so new and interesting to me. The brief commands, the shrill note of the whistle, the men bustling to their places in the glimmer of the ship's lanterns. Now, barbecue, tip us a stave, cried one voice. The old one, cried another. Aye, aye, mates, said Long John, who was standing by with his crutch under his arm and at once broke out in the air and words I knew so well. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. And then the whole crew bore chorus. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. And at the third ho, drove the bars before them with a will. Even at that exciting moment, it carried me back to the old Admiral Benbow in a second, and I seemed to hear the voice of the captain piping in the chorus. But soon the anchor was shored up. Soon it was hanging, dripping at the bows. Soon the sails began to draw, and the land and shipping to flit by on either side. And before I could lie down to snatch an hour of slumber, the Hispaniola had begun her voyage to the Isle of Treasure. I am not going to relate that voyage in detail. It was fairly prosperous. The ship proved to be a good ship. The crew were capable seamen, and the captain thoroughly understood his business. But before we came the length of Treasure Island, two or three things had happened which required to be known. Mr. Arrow, first of all, turned out even worse than the captain had feared. He had no command among the men, and people did what they pleased with him. But that was by no means the worst of it, for after a day or two at sea, he began to appear on deck with a hazy eye, red cheeks, stuttering tongue, and other marks of drunkenness. Time after time he was ordered below in disgrace. Sometimes he fell and cut himself. Sometimes he lay all day long in his little bunk at one side of the companion. Sometimes for a day or two he would be almost sober and attend to his work at least passably. In the meantime, we could never make out where he got the drink. That was the ship's mystery. Watch him as we pleased, we could do nothing to solve it. And when we asked him to his face, he would only laugh if he were drunk, and if he were sober, deny solemnly that he ever tasted anything but water. He was not only useless as an officer and a bad influence amongst the men, but it was plain that at this rate, 
he must soon kill himself outright. So nobody was much surprised nor very sorry when one dark night, with a head sea, he disappeared entirely and was seen no more. Overboard, said the captain. Well, gentlemen, that saves the trouble of putting him in irons. But there we were without a mate, and it was necessary, of course, to advance one of the men. The boatswain, Job Anderson, was the likeliest man aboard, and though he kept his old title, he served in a way as mate. Mr. Trelawney had followed the sea, and his knowledge made him very useful, for he often took a watch himself in easy weather. And the coxswain, Israel Hands, was a careful, wily, old-experienced seaman who could be trusted at a pinch with almost anything. He was a great confidant of Long John Silver, and so the mention of his name leads me on to speak of our ship's cook, Barbecue, as the men called him. Aboard ship, he carried his crutch by a lanyard around his neck to have both hands as free as possible. It was something to see him wedge the foot of the crutch against a bulkhead and propped against it, yielding to every movement of the ship, get on with his cooking like someone safe ashore. Still, more strange was it to see him in the heaviest of weather cross the deck. He had a line or two rigged up to help him across the widest spaces, Long John's earrings, they were called, and he would hand himself from one place to another, now using the crutch, now trailing it alongside by the lanyard as quickly as another man could walk. Yet some of the men who had sailed with him before expressed their pity to see him so reduced. He's no common man, Barbecue, said the coxswain to me. He had good schooling in his young days and can speak like a book when so minded. And brave! A lion's nothing alongside of Long John. I seen him grapple four and knock their heads together, him unarmed. All the crew respected and even obeyed him. He had a way of talking to each and doing everybody some particular service. To me, he was unweariedly kind and always glad to see me in the galley, which he kept as clean as a new pin, the dishes hanging up burnished and his parrot in a cage in one corner. Come away, Hawkins, he would say. Come and have a yarn with John. Nobody more welcome than yourself, my son. Sit you down and hear the news. Here's Captain Flint. I calls my parrot Captain Flint after the famous buccaneer. Here's Captain Flint predicting success to our voyage. Wasn't you, Captain? And the parrot would say with great rapidity, Pieces of eight, pieces of eight, pieces of eight, till you wondered that it was not out of breath or till John threw his handkerchief over the cage. Now that bird, he would say, is maybe two hundred years old, Hawkins. They live forever, mostly, and if anybody's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. She sailed with England, the great Captain England, the pirate. She's been at Madagascar, and Malabar, and Surinam, and Providence, and Portobello. She was at the fishing up of the wrecked plate ships, it's there she learned pieces of eight, and little wonder. Three hundred and fifty thousand of them, Hawkins. She was at the boarding of the Viceroy of the Indies out of Goa, she was. And to look at her, you'd think she was a bobby. But you smelt powder, didn't you, Captain? Stand by to go about, the parrot would scream. Ah, she's a handsome craft, she is, the cook would say, and give her sugar from his pocket and then the bird would peck at the bars and swear straight on, passing belief for wickedness. 
There, John would add, you can't touch pitch and not be mucked, lad. Here's this poor old innocent bird of mine swearing blue fire, and none the wiser you may lay to that. She would swear the same in a manner of speaking before chaplain, and John would touch his forelock with a solemn way he had that made me think he was the best of men. In the meantime, the squire and Captain Smollett were still on pretty distant terms with one another. The squire made no bones about the matter. He despised the captain. The captain, on his part, never spoke but when he was spoken to, and then sharp and short and dry, and not a word wasted. He owned, when driven into a corner, that he seemed to have been wrong about the crew, that some of them were as brisk as he wanted to see, and all had behaved fairly well. As for the ship, he had taken a downright fancy to her. She'll lie a point nearer the wind than a man has a right to expect of his own married wife, sir. But, he would add, all I say is, we're not home again, and I don't like the cruise. The squire at this would turn away and march up and down the deck, chin in air. A trifle more of that man, he would say, and I shall explode. We had some heavy weather, which only proved the qualities of the Hispaniola. Every man on board seemed well content, and they must have been hard to please if they had been otherwise, for it is my belief there was never a ship's company so spoiled since Noah put to sea. Double grog was going on the least excuse. There was duff on odd days, as for instance, if the squire heard it was any man's birthday, and always a barrel of apples standing broached in the waist for anyone to help himself that had a fancy. Never knew good come of it yet, the captain said to Dr. Livesey. Spoil forecastle hands, make devils. That's my belief. But good did come of the apple barrel, as you shall hear. For if it had not been for that, we should have had no note of warning and might all have perished by the hand of treachery. This was how it came about. We had run up the trades to get the wind of the island we were after. I'm not allowed to be more plain. And now we were running down for it with a bright lookout day and night. It was about the last day of our outward voyage by the largest computation. Sometime that night, or at latest before noon of the morrow, we should sight the treasure island. We were heading south-southwest and had a steady breeze abeam and a quiet sea. The Hispaniola rolled steadily, dipping her bowsprit now and then with a whiff of spray. All was drawing alow and aloft. Everyone was in the bravest spirits because we were now so near an end of the first part of our adventure. Now, just after sundown, when all my work was over and I was on my way to my berth, it occurred to me that I should like an apple. I ran on deck. The watch was all forward looking out for the island. The man at the helm was watching the luff of the sail and whistling away gently to himself. And that was the only sound excepting the swish of the sea against the bows and around the sides of the ship. In I got bodily into the apple barrel and found there was scarce an apple left. But sitting down there in the dark, what with the sound of the waters and the rocking movement of the ship, I had either fallen asleep or was on the point of doing so when a heavy man sat down with rather a clash close by. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it, and I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, 
and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening in the extreme of fear and curiosity. For from these dozen words, I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Chapter 11. What I Heard in the Apple Barrel No, not I, said Silver. Flint was captain. I was quartermaster along of my timber leg. The same broadside I lost my leg, old Pew lost his deadlights. It was a master surgeon, him that amputated me, out of college and all, Latin by the bucket and whatnot. But he was hanged like a dog and sun-dried like the rest at the Corso Castle. That was Robert's men, that was, and cummed of changing names to their ships, Royal Fortune and so on. Now, what a ship was christened, so let us stay, I says. So it was with the Cassandra, all brought us all safe home from Malabar after England took the Viceroy of the Indies. So it was with the old walrus, Flint's old ship, as I've seen a muck with the red blood and fit to sink with gold. Ah, cried another voice, that of the youngest hand on board, and evidently full of admiration. He was the flower of the flock, was Flint. Davis was a man too, by all accounts, said Silver. I never sailed along of him, first with England, then with Flint, that's my story, and now here on my own account, in a manner of speaking. I laid by nine hundred safe from England, and two thousand after Flint. That ain't bad for a man before the mast. All safe in bank. Taint earning now, it's saving, does it? You may lay to that. Where's all England's men now? I don't know. Where's Flint's? Why, most of them aboard here, and glad to get the duff. Been begging before that, some of them. Old Pew has had lost his sight, and might have thought shame. Spends twelve hundred pounds in a year, like a lord in Parliament. Where's he now? Well, he's dead now, and under hatches. But for two year before that, shiver me timbers, the man was starving. He begged and he stole and he cut throats and starved at that by the powers. Well, it ain't much use after all, said the young seaman. 
"'Tain't much use for fools you may lay to it. "'That for nothing,' cried Silver. "'But now you look here. "'You're young, you are, but you're smart as paint. "'I see that when I set my eyes on you, "'and I'll talk to you like a man.' "'You may imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable old rogue "'addressing another in the very same words of flattery "'as he'd used to myself.' I think if I had been able that I would have killed him through the barrel. Meantime, he ran on, little supposing he was overheard. Here it is about gentlemen of fortune. They lives rough and they risk swinging, but they eat and drink like fighting cocks. And when a cruise is done, why, it's hundreds of pounds instead of hundreds of farthings in their pockets. Now the most goes for rum and a good fling and to see again in their shirts. But that's not the course I lay. I puts it all away, some here, some there, and none too much anywheres by reason of suspicion. I'm fifty, mark you. Once back from this cruise, I set up gentlemen in earnest. Time enough, too, says you. Ah, but I've lived easy in the meantime, never denied myself a nothing heart desires, and slept soft and ate dainty all my days but when at sea. And how did I begin? Before the mast, like you. Well, said the other, but all the other money's gone now, ain't it? You daren't show face in Bristol after this. Why, where might you suppose it was? asked Silver derisively. At Bristol, in banks and places, answered his companion. It were, said the cook. It were when we weighed anchor. But my old missus has it all by now. And the spyglass is sold, lease and goodwill and rigging, and the old girl's off to meet me. I would tell you where, for I trust you, but it'd make jealousy among the mates. And can you trust your missus? asked the other. Gentlemen of fortune, returned the cook, usually trust little among themselves, and right they are, you may lay to it. But I have a way with me, I have. When a mate brings a slip on his cable, one as knows me, I mean, it won't be in the same world with old John. There were some that feared a pew, and some that was feared a flint. But flint his own self was feared of me. Feared he was and proud. They was the roughest crew afloat, was flint's. The devil himself would have been feared to go to sea with him. Well, now I tell you, I'm not a boasting man. And you've seen yourself how easy I keep company. But when I was quartermaster... Lambs wasn't the word for Flint's old buccaneers. Ah, you may be sure of yourself in old John's ship. Well, I tell you now, replied the lad, I didn't half a quarter like the job till I had this talk with you, John. But there's my hand on it now. And a brave lad you were, and smart, too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that all the barrels shook. And a finer figurehead for a gentleman of fortune I never clapped my eyes on. By this time, I had begun to understand the meaning of their terms. By a gentleman of fortune, they plainly meant neither more nor less than a common pirate. And the little scene that I had overheard was the last act in the corruption of one of the honest hands, perhaps of the last one left aboard. But on this point, I was soon to be relieved. For Silver giving a little whistle, a third man strolled up and sat down by the party. Dick Square, said Silver. 
Oh, I know Dick was square, returned the voice of the coxswain Israel hands. He's no fool, is Dick. And he turned his quid and spat. But look here, he went on. Here's what I want to know, Barbecue. How long are we a-going to stand off and on like a blessed bumboat? I've had a most enough of Captain Smollett. He's hazed me long enough by thunder. I want to go into that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wines in that. Israel, said Silver, your head ain't much account, nor ever was. But you're able to hear, I reckon. Leastways, your ears is big enough. Now here's what I say. You'll berth forward and you'll live hard and you'll speak soft and you'll keep sober till I give you the word. And you may lay to that, my son. Well, I don't say no, do I, growled the coxswain. What I say is when. That's what I say. When? By the powers, cried Silver. Well, now, if you want to know, I'll tell you when. The last moment I can manage, that's when. Here's a first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett, sails the blessed ship for us. Here's this squire and doctor with a map and such. I don't know where it is, do I? No more do you, says you. Well, then, I mean this squire and doctor shall find the stuff and help us get it aboard by the powers. Then we'll see. If I was sure of you all, sons of double Dutchmen, I'd have Captain Smollett navigate us halfway back again before I struck. Why? We're all seamen aboard here, I should think, said the lad Dick. We're all forecastle hands, you mean, snapped Silver. We can steer a course, but who's to set one? That's what all you gentlemen split on first and last. If I had my way, I'd have Captain Smollett work us back into the trades at least. Then we'd have no blessed miscalculations and a spoonful of water a day. But I know the sort you are. I'll finish with them at the island as soon as the blunt's on board, and a pity it is. But you're never happy till you're drunk. Split my sides. I've a sick heart to sail with the likes of you. Easy all, Long John, cried Israel. Who's a-crossin' of you? Why, how many tall ships, think ye now, have I seen laid aboard? And how many brisk lads drying in the sun at execution dock, cried Silver. And all for this same hurry and hurry and hurry. You hear me? I seen a thing or two at sea, I have. If you would only lay your course and a pint to windward, you would ride in carriages, you would. But not you. I know you. You'll have your mouth full of rum tomorrow and go hang. Everybody knowed you was a kind of a chapling, John, but there's others as could hand and steer as well as you, said Israel. They liked a bit of fun, they did. They wasn't so high and dry, nohow, but they took their fling like jolly companions, every one. So, says Silver, well, and where are they now? Pew was that sort, and he died a beggar man. Flint was, and he died of rum in Savannah. Ah, they was a sweet crew, they was. Only where are they? But, Dick asked, when we do lay them athwart, what are we to do with them anyhow? There's the man for me, cried the cook admiringly. That's what I call business. Well, what would you think? Put him ashore like maroons? That would have been England's way. Or cut him down like that much pork. That would have been Flint's or Billy Bones's. Billy was the man for that, said Israel. Dead men don't bite, says he. 
Well, he's dead now himself. He knows the long and short on it now. And if ever a rough hand come to port, it was Billy. Right you are, said Silver, rough and ready. But mark you here. I'm an easy man. I'm quite the gentleman, says you. But this time it's serious. Duty is duty, mates. I give my vote. Death. When I'm in Parliament and riding in my coach, I don't want none of these sea lawyers in the cabin a coming home, unlooked for like the devil at prayers. Wait is what I say, but when the time comes, why let her rip. John, cries the coxswain, you're a man. You'll say so, Israel, when you see, said Silver. Only one thing I claim. I claim Trelawney. I'll wring his calf's head off his body with these hands, Dick, he added, breaking off. You just jump up like a sweet lad and get me an apple to wet my pipe like. You may fancy the terror I was in. I should have leaped out and run for it if I had found the strength, but my limbs and heart alike misgave me. I heard Dick begin to rise, and then someone seemingly stopped him, and the voice of Hans exclaimed, Oh, stow that. Don't you get sucking of that bilge, John. Let's have a go of the rum. Dick, said Silver, I trust you. I've a gauge on the keg, mind. There's a key. You'll fill a pannikin and bring it up. Terrified as I was, I could not help thinking to myself that this must have been how Mr. Arrow got the strong waters that destroyed him. Dick was gone but a little while, and during his absence Israel spoke straight on in the cook's ear. It was but a word or two that I could catch, and yet I gathered some important news, for besides other scraps that tended to the same purpose, this whole clause was audible. Not another man of them all jine. Hence, there were still faithful men on board. When Dick returned, one after another of the trio took the pannikin and drank. One to luck, another with a here's to old Flint, and Silver himself sang in a kind of song, Here's to ourselves and hold your luff, plenty of prizes and plenty of duff. Just then a sort of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, and looking up, I found the moon had risen and was silvering the mizzen top and shining white on the luff of the foresail. And almost at the same time, the voice of the lookout shouted, Land Ho! Chapter 12, Council of War There was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin and the forecastle, and slipping in an instant outside my barrel, I dived behind the foresail, made a double towards the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather bow. There all hands were congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us, we saw two low hills about a couple of miles apart, and rising behind one of them, a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before. And then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind and now sailed a course that would just clear the island on the east. 
And now, men, said the captain when all was sheeted home, has any one of you ever seen that land ahead? I have, sir, said Silver. I have watered there with the trader I was cooking. The anchorage is on the south behind an islet, I fancy, asked the captain. Yes, sir. Skeleton Island, they calls it. It were a main place for pirates once, and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. That hill to the norrard they calls the Foremast Hill. There are three hills in a row running southward, four, main, and mizzen, sir. But the main, that's the big one with the cloud on it, they usually calls the spyglass, by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage cleaning. For it's there they cleaned their ship, sir, asking your pardon. I have a chart here, says Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart, but by the fresh look of the paper, I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bones's chest, but an accurate copy, complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with the single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. Yes, sir, said he. This is the spot to be sure and very prettily drawed out. Who might have done that, I wonder? The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon. Aye, here it is, Captain Kidd's Anchorage. Just the name my shipmate called it. There's a strong current runs along the south, and then away norrard up the west coast. Right you was, sir, says he, to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island. Leastways, if such was your intention as to enter in Kareen, and there ain't no better place for it than in these waters. Thank you, my man, says Captain Smollett. I'll ask you later on to give us a help. You may go. I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was half frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know, to be sure, that I had overheard his counsel from the apple barrel, and yet I had by this time taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and power that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. Ah, says he, this here's a sweet spot, this island, a sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe and you'll climb trees and you'll hunt goats, you will, and you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. Why, it makes me young again. I was going to forget me, Timberleg, I was. It's a pleasant thing to be young and have ten toes, and you may lay to that. When you want to go a bit of exploring, you just ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. And clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarter-deck, and anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. When I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and being a slave to tobacco had meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak and not be overheard, I broke immediately. Doctor, let me speak. Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news. The doctor changed countenance a little, 
but next moment he was a master of himself. Thank you, Jim, he said quite loudly. That was all I wanted to know, as if he had asked me a question. And with that, he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request, for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. My lads, said Captain Smollett, I've a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing for. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two, and as I was able to tell him that every man on board had done his duty a low and aloft, as I never asked to see it done better, why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out for you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it handsome, and if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed. That was a matter of course. But it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe the same men were plotting for our blood. One more cheer for Captain Smollett, cried Long John when the first had subsided. And this also was given with a will. On the top of that, the three gentlemen went below, and not long after, word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated round the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that, I knew, was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. Now, Hawkins, said the squire, you have something to say? Speak up. I did as I was bid, and as short as I could make it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done, nor did any one of the three of them make so much as a movement. But they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. Jim, said Dr. Livesey, take a seat. And they made me sit down at table beside them, poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hands with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank my good health and their service to me for my luck and courage. Now, Captain, said the squire, you were right, and I was wrong. I own myself an ass, and I await your orders. No more an ass than I, sir, returned the captain. I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny but what showed signs before for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief and take steps according. But this crew, he added, beats me. Captain, said the doctor, with your permission, that's Silver, a very remarkable man. He'd look remarkably well from a yardarm, sir, returned the captain. But this is talk. This don't lead to anything. I see three or four points. And with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name them. You, sir, are the captain. It is for you to speak, says Mr. Trelawney grandly. First point, began Mr. Smollett. We must go on, because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to go about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least until this treasure's found. Third point, 
There are faithful hands. Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later, and what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, and come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney. As upon myself, declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Ourselves make seven, counting Hawkins here. Now about the honest hands. Most likely Trelawney's own men, said the doctor, those he had picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire, hands was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands, added the captain. And to think that they're all Englishmen, broke out the squire. Sir, I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up. Well, gentlemen, said the captain, the best that I can say is not much. We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. It's trying on a man I know. It would be pleasanter to come to blows, but there's no help for it till we know our men. Lay to and whistle for a wind. That's my view. Jim here, said the doctor, can help us more than anyone. The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad. Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you, added the squire. I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless. And yet, by an odd train of circumstances, it was indeed through me that safety came. In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of the twenty-six on whom we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. Thank you for listening to Part 2 of Treasure Island. In the next episode, Part 3 of our hero's story, the Hispaniola arrives off the coast of Treasure Island. Jim and his allies prepare for the inevitable mutiny, while Long John Silver and his pirates make their move. If you've enjoyed today's story, be sure to check out our ParCast original, Villains, the show where we discuss fictional antagonists from pop culture and literature alongside the real-life figures who inspired them. In a recent episode, we discussed Treasure Island's Long John Silver alongside the real-life Pirate King Henry Every. Warning, there are spoilers for the plot of Treasure Island, so you may want to save it for after you've completed this series of Parcast Presents Storytime. This adaptation of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson is produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. I'm Richard Rossner. <laughs>